Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. This week, I'm on the ground in Berlin, Germany, where the 2024 Berlinale kicked off on February 15th. The festival runs through February 25th, and this year's lineup features new works by Mati Diop, Olivier Assayas, Bruno Dumont, Sai Ming Liang, Hong Sang-soo, Ruth Beckerman, and many other filmmakers. Throughout the week, the Film Comment crew will be reporting on each day's new premieres at the Berlinale through podcasts, dispatches, and interviews. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment Letter and the Film Comment Podcast to keep up with all our coverage of this year's Berlinale. It is day three at the Berlinale, um, 2024. The last podcast I did was late at night, and this one is early in the morning. Most of us here, the crew I have gathered today, woke up to see the new Mati Dia film Dahomey at 9 a.m. So forgive us if we sound a little groggy, or at least if I sound a little groggy. But everyone around me looks extremely fresh. Would you all introduce yourselves, Erica, starting with you? Hi, I'm Erica Balsam. I uh, teach in the film studies department at King's College in London. Hi, I'm Beatrice Liza. I'm critic, live in New York. Hi, I'm Giovanni Marchini Camia. I'm a critic and programmer, and I live in Berlin. So, um, on the last podcast, we started off talking a little bit about some of the many controversies swirling around this year's Berlinale, which is a kind of a very fraught edition um, in multiple ways. Uh, We talked about the bureaucratic challenges faced by this year's uh, programming team and the festival at large, and we alluded to some of the political challenges facing the festival and Germany more broadly, uh, having to do with the war in Gaza. And uh, Giovanni, you are a resident of Berlin. I'm wondering if you could start us off by saying a little bit about the developments of the recent months and how it's sort of affected the festival um, and the experience, I guess, of filmmakers and festival goers? Mm. Um, Well, I think it was news all over the world, the way Germany reacted to to this um, conflict. And it's actually nothing new. It's uh, Germany's... um, politics in this regard have been very consistent over the years but this has really brought it out to the fore much more and yeah germany has been pro-israel um in a way that has not really allowed for much dialogue and and the cultural sector especially they have a uh, there's an official policy that any sort of criticism of israel is um is very easily, if not automatically, considered to be anti-Semitic. 
and that obviously for the Berinale has very big implications and the Berinale has not has not made a very strong statement about about the whole conflict uh, in January at some point they published something I think it was like a paragraph only something very vague saying that the, the festival should be a um, place for dialogue you know something very festivals love being a place for dialogue yeah exactly yeah. but they haven't actually set up almost any uh what's the word any uh, possibility for dialogue or any opportunities for dialogue if you look at for example what they set up last year with the ukraine war there were events there were workshops there were forums officially by the festival whereas the only thing i've noticed here is this i think it's called like tiny box tiny house tiny house and very tiny yeah it's a boot kind and of and I'm sorry, it's actually ridiculous. It's, I think, it fits six people. It's a box. And it's like the symbolism is, is so obvious. Like literally, this is the dialogue that we allow. This, there's a box you can go into with five other people and you can discuss at your heart's content and there won't be any sort of... Yeah, I don't know. That's not, that's not what dialogue is. Yeah. And to clarify, it's a house with an Israeli and a Palestinian artist whose project this is. And so it's sort of, you can go and talk to the two of them about, according to this description, uh, description Israel and Palestine, which is pretty vague. And um, I'm very curious about what is going on inside that box, but the conversations are in German. So I might... Um, Take along my trusty German interpreter. <laughs> yeah, we can go into the tiny box. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I just, I wanted to add to what Giovanni was saying that a movement formed a couple months ago called Strike Germany that called for cultural workers and artists all over the world to boycott German cultural institutions. Uh, and it was mobilized primarily against the censorship of pro-Palestinian speech in Germany, you know, the context, Giovanni, you were just mentioning. Um, and the city of Berlin actually did drop this IHRA provision that would make any criticism of Israel anti-Semitic. But other parts of Germany have not yet, so Strike Germany is still... Uh, no, it didn't. That's not quite right. That's it didn't not, drop okay. it. It's still, I think that's still the official definition of anti-Semitism in Germany. But Berlin had stipulated that any cultural funding had to uh, you had to sign uh, you had to agree with that definition right, and right. that definition can be read as denying any criticism of Israel some right. and some institutions do require this also outside Berlin and I know at one point there was some discussion that those institutions would be the target of a boycott so specifically to boycott institutions adopting the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, um, but that is not what happened. And instead, there was a more comprehensive call to strike from all German cultural institutions, which some people have taken up. And there have been filmmakers that have withdrawn from the Berlinale this year, primarily from the Forum Expanded section, which focuses on artist film. But I think um, for other people, the sort of um, generality of the strike Germany call um, has not really resonated with them. And I think that's why we haven't seen more widespread uh, withdrawal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, an important piece of context in all of this is that the Ministry of Culture is 
kind of one of the primary funders of the Berlinale. So the primary funder, as we see in the logos that appear before every screening. Um, so there is this alignment of state policy and sort of the Berlinalis policy uh, that people are wanting to also challenge and question. Um, and yeah, I, I did want to acknowledge the three artists who withdrew their films. There were only three from uh, my understanding from the film selection there. I think other people have withdrawn from labs and talents. Um, uh, but the three filmmakers are Sunil Sansgiri, Ayo Tsalitaba, and John Grayson, who all had films and forum expanded. And there's also, you know, the other kind of big development that happened, which was regarding the invitation of members from the AFD party in Germany, which is this very right-wing described as an extremist right-wing party. And there was an open letter about that and kind of outrage, as, as people like to say. And then the Berlinale withdrew the invitation from those uh, members of the AFD. And that led to more, actually, I would say, not protest, but, you know, there were people complaining, including members of this year's jury, that that was, you know, cowardly or anti-democratic you know, to some. So that's been very interesting to witness as well. And the Berlinale published a statement saying, you know, they why they decided to withdraw those invitations, uh, which is a change from their regular policy because they want to stand up for democracy. There's a lot of words going around and it's kind of hard to, you know, they apply to some situations and they don't to others. And um, and then the Berlinale, there's a, a coalition of Berlin, Berlinale workers who also put out a letter a few days before the festival asking the festival to openly commit to a ceasefire and create more really proactive spaces for dialogue. Uh, and the Forum Expanded team, I believe just yesterday or this morning, has released their own statement calling for a ceasefire, which kind of breaks with the overall uh, position of the festival as a whole, which is interesting because the Forum has always been a sort of quasi-independent section. And so now we're actually seeing uh, a different manifestation of that, not just at the level of programming, but in terms of the statement that they're making. Yeah, and I attended a panorama screening yesterday uh, for this film called No Other Land, directed by Basil Adra, who is a, a Palestinian activist journalist based in the West Bank in Masafar Yatta, and Yuval Abraham, who is an Israeli activist. The two met a few years ago um, and decided to start filming in the West Bank region, in the Masafar Yatta region, where... Basically, uh, this land that families have been living on for generations was declared a military training ground for the IDF. And the IDF was just, and the Israeli state was just coming in, has been coming in for years with just bulldozers, just raising the homes and accusing the people who've been living there for a long time of being illegal invaders or settlers. Um, and the film was just... <sighs> so moving. I mean, I cannot describe what it was like to watch it in the current moment. And it's mostly amateur-ish footage shot by these two young journalists. I mean, there's other uh, camera work as well, but it's very kind of intimate, uh, a lot of point of view footage, a lot of kind of close encounters with 
the IDF and violent like local settlers who come in constantly and destroy homes or you know shoot up people and then a lot of scenes of what it's like living among you know amidst all of this and also the friendship that develops between Basil and Yuval Yuval being kind of one of these few really leftist pro-Palestinian Israelis who learned Arabic after high school. And he says in the film that learning the language changed his political views because it opened him up to a world of knowledge. And there's a lot of conversations that he has with the locals there who are very welcoming, but also cautious about his presence. And there's an incredible scene where him and Basel are driving. And Yuval says something, you know, I posted this article yesterday and it only... You know, it only got these many views. It only got 25 views, which is really tragic. And Basel says, um, you know, you're you're too eager. You want to come here, solve everything and go back home in 10 days. And this has been going on for decades. It, it's a very warm, playful exchange, not accusatory or confrontational at all. But the film is full of these exchanges, you know, where there's this incredible solidarity between them. I mean, Yuval really goes out with these folks, with Basel, uh, into these confrontations, but also a constant negotiation with the differences in privilege and what it means for Yuval to be able to come to the West Bank every few days to visit Basel, but Basel cannot leave the West Bank, and how to be kind of a good ally while carrying all of this very, very visible privilege. Um, and the film was shot between 2020 and fall 2023. So the last bit of footage really kind of overlaps with the start of the uh, conflict in Gaza and Israel's, you know, ongoing assault there. And, you know, I think it's a wonderful piece of filmmaking. I think it's a really kind of excellently edited and shot on-the-ground piece of filmmaking and journalism and also a really beautiful inquiry into the relations that make up these kinds of political movements and protests. And also just, it was an experience, you know, of, of watching those images right now in Berlin was just so moving. And the there was a standing ovation, there was chanting uh, in the audience, arguments sort of broke out between audience members in, in the course of the Q&A. Um, and it was just uh, sort of very thrilling kind of to witness. The filmmakers disavowed the Berlinale and the German cultural policy. Um, in the Q&A, they said, us being here does not mean we support the government's or the festival's policy, they really need to call for and explicitly call for an immediate ceasefire. Uh, and they really talked um, in a very kind of nuanced way, given I feel like they were walking a difficult tightrope in front of this packed audience uh, about how the film was made and how it relates to the current moment. And I'm really curious to see how that film circulates. And it was just heartening to be in a big room of people just cheering and clapping. And even though there were disagreements and kind of very vocal disagreements, it was still a very engaged audience overall, very curious and engaged audience that I think was universally deeply affected by the film. I think it really raises an interesting question. I mean, I didn't see this particular film, but 
uh, especially the way you're describing the reception, it kind of foregrounds this idea of the tensions that exist between the politics of films and the politics of the platforms on which we encounter those films. And I think for some people, they would say, well, you're participating in the Berlinale, you're completely compromised. You know, you've been co-opted, it's over. Whereas other people would say, you know, no, in fact, from within this position, we can carve out something else. Um, and that kind of tension or contradiction is really at the heart of what, for me, is one of the most extraordinary films I've seen here so far. Uh, which Love is a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> Exerg on Documenta 14, which is a 14-hour observational documentary about the mega exhibition that took place in Castle in Athens in 2017. And when you see this film, the writing is already on the wall. All of the things that we have seen sort of explode in the cultural sector in Germany over the past months are already there. Um, and so it's really fascinating to sort of watch this play out. Adam Simchik, the artistic director of Documenta, takes a very clear position that, you know, anyone working within an institution is always already compromised. But you really get the sense from him that he believes that something can be left over, you know, a remainder, an excess of contestation, creativity, thinking, even after we take into account, you know, all the costs that um, come with inhabiting this kind of huge state-funded platform. And so there's a way in which we can see all of Exerg as providing a kind of allegory for the Berlinale itself. Yeah, and um, I should just note that Exerg is 14 hours, the first mm. seven hours screened uh, on Friday. I believe, Erica, you've seen... I've seen the it all. The whole damn thing. I watched it all. 14 and hours. We will have a dispatch coming from Erica later this week, which I think will get into the film a little more, which I'm really looking forward to reading because there's no way I could justify blocking 14 <laughs> hours out of my week here to watch that. But it sounds really fascinating. And I agree with you that to me also this tension is really interesting. And that is something I was thinking about while watching No Other Land, which is, you know... In one sense, yeah, some would say that their presence here is already compromised. There is also another sense in which I'm sure someone like Basel, the filmmaker, might feel like, you know, there are already the silencing of Palestinian voices is already so aggressive. And so that film and that conversation not taking place would in a way further that. But yeah, I mean, it's I'm I'm there's a lot to think about in in terms of the festival experience, not just the films, but how people are responding to the films. And yeah, we we just have to see, I guess. Um, let's move to this. I, I There's no way I can segue to this ridiculous <laughs> film. Do I mean that in a good or a bad way? We'll see. Uh, the silliest film I've seen here so far, which is Bruno Dumont's The Empire. And Beatrice, maybe you can jump in here and tell us a little bit about it and what you what you thought. Um, yeah, so this is, um, I guess, the most spectacular film by Bruno Dumont. Uh, at least, I mean, I don't know if it reflects on the actual effects, but one would think that he would have the biggest budget on this, given that it's, a, uh, in one sense, a Star Wars spoof, um, very much utilizing um, some Jedi imagery, these themes of... of 
good and evil and the dark and light side, which is also actually quite present in throughout like Dumont's filmography. Mm. However, it's also obviously um, the main aspect of Star Wars itself. Um, the Darth Vader voice. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, there's, yeah. I mean, but, but I guess I can talk about just what it's about. Um, I mean, it's essentially a Baroque space opera um, that unfolds within uh, this coastal village in northern France, which is just like, you know, the characteristic stomping grounds of all of Dumont's films. Um, and so seemingly just provincial folks living in this town are also sort of occupied um, by these celestial forces. Um, some of them are evil. Some of them are are good. Obviously, the good ones correspond to like the Jedi's. Um, and uh, they are in the service of uh, these masters in, in space. The evil one is... Uh, uh, how do I explain it? Yeah, there are spaceships up in the sky. Uh, the, the evil spaceship is essentially like Versailles. And the good spaceship is like Notre Dame. And which is quite funny that, you know, these great French structures also, you know, if you kind of put them out of context within just like the blackness of the sky, they kind of look, look quite spaceship-like. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it starts out, um, it, it becomes gradually more sci-fi-esque and sort of culminates in a sort of sublime battle in, in the sky, uh, that naturally, um, combusts into nothingness. Um, and before that, there's a lot of sex in fields, a lot of you know, absurdist blank humor uh, on boats as well, um, which, um, in, I don't know, I'm, uh, have, I, have I done justice to... Uh, like lightsaber decapitations. Uh. Yeah, lightsaber decapitations. Um, yeah, and, you know, the space creatures also uh, confronting the humans because they're sort of among the humans as well, but they kind of... Uh, find the humans endearing. Um, I mean, what's what's wild listening to you, and which is what I've been thinking about since last night, is that on paper or described by you, the film sounds terrific, <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> I really did not enjoy this film, and it's and it's weird because I'm a huge Dumont fan. I think the only film of his I've not liked is Slack Bay, wow. but I was not on board with this film. It's just it's so messy. I didn't think the spoofs were actually funny. Again, on paper, they sound really mm -hmm. clever and intelligent. But I just, I didn't see the point. And the, the, the themes, it's true that the themes of good and evil, the dichotomy and so forth, he's explored before. Also, grace is a very important mm -hmm. part. But it just, it's so self-defeating, this, this the, 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 the stupidity of it and... I think he also, he, he quotes himself a lot. There's a lot of uh, little cancan, uh, petit cancan in there. But he has turned these two policemen who were super funny in the first iteration of Little Cancan, who became much dumber and less funny in the second iteration of Little Petit Cancan, and now are just, 
I mean, one of them is barely coherent anymore. Like, they're, they're, well, he's older now. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. As he, I, I yeah, I don't know. I, I think he's really the characters aren't funny anymore, and and you see all these elements of, of Dumont's um, filmography, like the, the the there's some imagery that is incredible, just so beautiful. The way he he films those landscapes, <laughs> Devika's doing a face oh, that yeah. is very <laughs> I, I, not convinced. I, I feel like it's gonna be. <laughs> I mean, I walked out yesterday and Gio and I talked a little bit about this film and he said this, we agreed, I also didn't like the film, but he was like, but some of the scenes are so great. And I was like, they're fine. They, this is my argument. I think they seem really great because they're in the context of like a somewhat trashy sci-fi opera, the kind of movie in which we're not used to seeing beautiful realistic vistas or you know I mean we're used to seeing things that look a lot more plastic or overdressed and it is a pleasant film to look at but I didn't necessarily find it you know stunning the imagery stunning for me it's like almost I think calling the film dumb and silly is like giving into Dumont's provocation so I feel like it's I but I also don't know what more to say which is that I I didn't feel like the silliness was in any way smart. You know, there's ways in which goofiness can have um, verb and can have a kind of, I don't know, sediments of cultural reference. This is just, seems like him playing around with some tropes and kind of goading us uh, with each little set piece with its like silliness and its random references. I mean, there's a reference to Game of Thrones at one point and there's just like lines drawn from various fantasy and sci-fi, uh, you know, movies and franchises. And, and this whole thing about good and evil, I mean, everything feels really arbitrary and very, very superficial, which... Again, like, could be enjoyable on its own terms. But for me, you know, he clearly had a huge budget because... It looks good. Yeah, yeah it looks good. Like, I, I don't necessarily know if it looks, like, beautiful, but it's, like, really well made. And there's all these interstellar battle scenes. And it annoyed me a little bit because I'm like, he gets to have this huge budget and then just <laughs> blow it on some, you know... I, I don't know. I don't know how to what to call it on some indulgent kind of um, outlet for his little in jokes and preoccupations. And just have to say, sorry to be a bit of a, a a grouch here, a bit of a scold. But do we have to see so many women's asses? Um, and I mean, just the, the representation of the two the two women was pretty hardcore. Like, I don't understand the character played by Lida Kuri. Did What is she? Is she part of either side? What is she doing in that film? Um, I mean, she is, I guess, possessed by the evil side. I mean, I think she's sort of like the standard, like, neighborhood slut type character. <laughs> um, yes. And, like, has that you bearing. Know that trope? <laughs> no, I mean, like, I mean, it, it is, I, I think it is supposed to be a type. Um, it's funny because, you know, I, I actually liked those sort of uh, punctuations of kind of gross sexuality. And it's sort of a return to that within his work after kind of, um, you know, I mean, he like turned to comedies, after, I guess, beginning with Slack Bay. And I think they're his 
his early work is is much more um i mean he like it's funny because i sensual had, and i had seen him perverse. speak and he said he wasn't going to do sex scenes anymore mm. because his first oh, well, he's got three of them here yeah, <laughs> his, but they're different because the he he kind of that was his thing he had these really gross sex mm. scenes in his early films they were not sexy in any way mm. really appalling whereas here they're kind of conventionally sexy. You know, the women are really beautiful. He photographs them in a way that is erotic. And again, I don't really understand yeah, why. So I, I, I quite like the film. Um, I think that like the way it's sort of um, making uncanny and appending certain tropes about just like the sci-fi Hollywood space invasion movie, which tends to sort of play out and... Um, uh, flesh out its humor by contrasting like the awesomeness of space within like sort of banal rural settings. I mean, that's kind of a standard representation. You see like the cow being sucked up, not, not in this movie, but like in general, like the cow being sucked up by like saucers and sort of awestruck farmers beholding like the awesomeness of, you know, space invasion. But um, I guess within the sort of Dumontian tenor, um, which I found quite compelling. And, you know, for me, like the sex is sort of a a welcome relief from like the sterility of these kinds of movies. And I mean, you're right. I, I think that there is more mileage to be gotten out of it, like in contrast to, you know, Star Wars type movies. Um, but I I thought it was funny. <laughs> And who can argue with that? I mean, that is, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of what this comes down to. I just don't find it funny, but some people are going to, you know, and that I think it does come down to a bit I of mean, like individual right. mileage on this one. And, you know, there is, I mean, it, this is sort of a problem with Dumont's work, I think, in general, just like, you know, do you think he's he's mocking these like provincial provincial French people, or is there a sort of um, a love to that? And and you know, I, I was sitting in front of like these French people, and they were like guffawing throughout it at like certain just like Frenchisms that you know. I, I really just think it's sort of a are you culturally familiar with what this is kind of riffing off of? Is it just? purely stupid because I actually don't think it is purely stupid I think there's sort of a, a certain key that he's latching on to that is probably elusive to some but you know that's kind of his charm I suppose as a filmmaker <laughs> I was sitting next to a couple of Germans who left like 20 minutes in so <laughs> a lot of people left but that's yeah he's so, a divisive filmmaker yeah. um well that so that's the empire uh Lampier. um Another film that I, actually all four of us have seen is Ruth Beckerman's uh, Favoriten. Am I saying that right? Favoriten. Favoriten. Um, we talked a little bit about it on the first podcast, but I did want to delve more into it because I really loved it. I was utterly charmed by it. And I think it's worth, yeah, it's uh, it's worth highlighting a bit from the lineup, at least so far. Maybe... Uh, Erica, you want to talk about it and just set it up? Sure. Um, this is a film that was shot over, I think, a two-year period in um, a middle school classroom in Vienna, in a district of Vienna called Favoriten. Um, and Beckerman has made films about Vienna basically for entire her entire career. But I think 
one thing that's interesting is that it's never like the Vienna of tourists of Mozart, etc. It's a different Vienna and one that is often about um, populations that have experienced some kind of displacement, whether voluntarily or not. Um, in a lot of her earlier films, it's the Jewish diaspora. Here we have instead a focus on a lot of kind of recent migration to to uh, Austria. Um, and I find it a really interesting shift, you know, to think about these two periods of her work together and the way that earlier on, she's very much in the role of the daughter looking back at this like earlier generation of her parents and her grandparents um, and the 30s and 40s. Um, now she's looking down at this younger generation and it's a very, very joyful film with this totally charming teacher but I think it would be wrong to just say, oh, this is Beckerman being lighthearted, because in fact, the classroom really becomes a kind of microcosm of political reality. So you have these students actually, you know, directly impacted by many kind of big political issues, but we see them playing out in this very quotidian level. And I, I find that a really interesting sort of indirect approach to thinking about, you know, how a film can engage with political reality. But you think it's uh, a little bit like Herr Bachmann und seine Klasse? Uh, no, like it's it's interesting. I was on, almost wondering whether it was filmed as a reaction to that film because mm. that film came out. What year was the the, ver the virtual ago. Berlinale? It was twenty 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 one twenty twenty one. Yeah, it was that year, and it's uh, a, a film by Maria Spät, a documentary um, that has almost the same concept, but in Germany. And it's looking at a class as they approach uh, fourth grade, which maybe is a thing that's worth uh, explaining a bit because neither film explains that to the audience and maybe people outside of uh, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland don't know that in these countries, once you reach fourth grade, you get split up into three different school systems and only one allows you to go to university. So at the age of, is it nine or ten? Basically, you get told whether you can go to university or not. And obviously, this has very strong social implications because foreigners who can't speak German, uh, children of, of immigrants, are massively disadvantaged. And even if they catch up later, although it is possible to switch schools later on, it's extremely difficult. And I think the, the percentage of that happening is very, very low. So both both films... Uh, portray a class of mainly immigrant children in uh, uh, Beckerman's film. I feel it's only immigrant children or... Virtually. I mean, there's a very interesting sequence in which they visit the St. Stephen's Cathedral mm. and we see that, you know, n no child in the class recognizes themselves as Christian. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the the priest asks if there are any Roman Catholics and there are none. And there's, you know, a couple Orthodox uh, Christians and that's um, it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, this context is really helpful, Giovanni, because I, I picked up a little bit that there is some sort of sorting into a technical school versus a university path, but I didn't realize it was so rigid that like mm -hmm. it really is a, a sorting. Um, I, I love that all of these details really... They're not telegraphed, you know. It it takes a little while to figure out that this is a class of mostly immigrant children. It's not obvious right away. It's an observational film. Exactly. It's very observational, except in certain very delightful moments where 
uh, the kids are given phone cameras and, and I think it's Beckerman that we hear explaining, you know, how, how to shoot footage with that. And they have such a blast with it. Um, and I, I found those scenes also very interesting because it's, you know, moments in which the kids really like are self-fashioning themselves. Um, they're filming each other and asking questions about gender and, you know, perceptions of the future. Uh, there's a scene where <laughs> three students are talking about culture and trying to define culture through this kid vocabulary that I found really revelatory. Um, but yeah, it's it's really observational in a committed way. And Again, that I, I, it took me a little while to realize that most of them were immigrant. And then slowly that shifted my understanding of what was going on in the classroom, uh, shifted my sort of understanding of, you know, the techniques that this teacher is using. And as someone who had terrible elementary school teachers, I, that this woman exists, this, this is, she's a Turkish immigrant herself, um, in Austria and, so much of the film is about her relationship with these kids. She teaches the kids for three years. So she develops this really close bond. And the way in which she resolves conflicts between them, you know, tries to kind of teach them about ideas about like gender equality without necessarily challenging cultural or familial ideas that they might have inherited. And uh, yeah, and how she... I think works with an understanding that they're immigrant, that they have these language barriers without questioning their possibilities or their capacities, really. I found like so touching to watch. But I really want to emphasize what you said, Erica, that I don't think this is a light film in the sense that Beckerman really makes it a point to kind of convey to us the world as it is experienced by these children, you know, and so there are scenes of them discussing wars. Many of them come from war-torn places. Mm. You know, as I said before, making sense of gender norms, of religion. I mean, there's a lot of talk about religion. And um, and it's neither, it's like the kid's understanding is neither overly simplistic or cute, nor is it, you know, sophisticated or cynical. And you do see their understanding of the world evolve over three years. So it's actually, I mean, it's just like very complex. And I truly forgot at some point that I was watching a movie. I mean, I really felt like I was just there in this classroom, which is not to say that it's fly on the wall or anything. I think Beckerman makes her presence actually quite explicit. But I guess it speaks to the way in which she makes the children so comfortable. They're very comfortable in front of the camera and is able to develop certain characters that we're able to follow, just very immersive in that way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny, that age group, they're in elementary school. Um, it's it's very easily gratifying to just, like, have the camera on this age, and as someone who's nannied <laughs> kids <laughs> this age before, um, just because they're at that sort of fine line between, like, still sort of naive and not really s self-aware of how they present themselves, and then also sort of learning how to, um, I guess, self-style themselves in a certain way. Um, and so, and you know, as you said, um, I think it's easy to just, like be kind of brought onto their wavelength and just like love observing these kids. But I think there is also something interesting about that specific age group and like the kinds of lessons that they would be 
having and, and learning and, and doing in class, like they actually need to be learning German. And so many of them speak Turkish or other mm -hmm. languages. And like, you know, they, uh, a lot, a lot of them, you know, German language class is as hard as math, which is of course, like, you know, the stereotypically most difficult subject for, for any kid. Um, and so, uh, you know, based off that, they just need to kind of utter basic facts about themselves. And it's so interesting um, to have each one, like go one after the other, saying exactly what it is their their mother and father do and just like basic desires about themselves and, and sort of, uh, you know, verbalizing that and being like conscious of that is something that I think is very specific to that age group. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, I, I just thought that that was... Uh, concerted or like a, a very specific choice that really paid off for me. Um, let's maybe uh, close out by discussing a film that Giovanni, Erica and I saw early this morning, which is Monty Diop's Daume. Um, Giovanni, do you want to describe it a little bit? Uh, sure. It's a documentary about, it's November 2021, right? Uh, that the French government uh, returned 26 uh, piece artifacts, pieces of art, to what is today Benin and what used to be called Daomé. And it's pretty short. It's only uh, 70 minutes, I think. And it, it's extremely rich in the way it is constructed because first you just get the, the quick context. But a big, big bulk of the film is this, I don't know if it's a town hall meeting or a university, but it's a big debate among the people in Benin discussing the importance of of this return. And there's also, I thought it was interesting that there was um element of, uh, of people were criticizing even the fact that these artifacts were being returned, that it was an insult when there's some 7,000 that haven't been returned. And others were saying, no, this is very important. It's a first step and we've got to build from this. And this whole town meeting is edited in a very good way, which I think contrasts quite interestingly to Exergate, the documenta film, which just watches similar debates for a very long time, whereas Mati Diop really condenses it and just... The other thing is really uh, terrific in this scene where it, like, you get so much out of what is maybe a 20-minute sequence or something like that. And the rest of the film, it has echoes to Atlantique in the way that it, ha it, it, um, it gives a voice to one or several of the artifacts. And it's basically a ghost. It, it plays a lot with, uh, with black, with night, with these artifacts being... Um, locked up in boxes, not being able to be out, have a life. And there's all these creeping zooms that render the um, the urban landscape uncanny. And yeah, I was, I mean, I still have to reflect on it a bit. We literally walked out of it and all straight into this room. <laughs> but Captured by my, me. <laughs> my first impression was that it's an incredibly rich and intelligent work. I think it's incredible, really super impressive. And I think, you know, there is a very small but significant filmography of works that are about looted artifacts in museum collections in various ways. Statues Also Die being a very famous one, but also You Hide Me from 1970, which is shot in the British Museum and is an explicit call for restitution. Um, there's also the Sarah Maldoror film. Et les chances de taiser. 
I was trying to, is it after the dogs were silent? And the, and the dogs were silent, which is an adaptation of an Aimé César play. So we have, you know, these are, I would say, the three touchstones of these kind of films. And for me, I mean, maybe there is another one that exists. But for me, this is the first work I've seen that's actually extending that through the process of repatriation. And um, this... I'll maybe add Lockie Mero to it, which I was uh, thinking of a little bit. I actually yeah. haven't seen that, so... Um, but, um, this voice that is a first person voice processed through this kind of synthesizer to sound very kind of non-human, uh, is the voice of the object in a way. So this question of like the undead object or the, um, I don't know, a kind of non-anthropocentric liveliness, uh, of the object, I think is very unsettling, creepy, introduces a kind of science fiction element to a film that is also like a process film, right? Of like, we see these objects being packaged in France, we see them being uncrated in Benin, then we see the exhibition, we see the debates. And so it follows this linear process and that is very observational. But then there's this like ge generic twist where we see the entrance of these kind of science fiction elements with quite an amazing soundtrack also. Oh, the sound is so good. Um, yeah, I, I was just so taken with it. Uh, it's so dense in a pretty short runtime, as you were saying, Giovanni. You know, I think when the film began, um, sensorially it was immediately captivating and this the giving voice to the artifacts the voiceover of the artifact the poetic voiceover you know kind of draws parallels to the uh to slave ships and uh you know talking about the dark of the night and the uh bodies in the ocean that sort of imagery uh, but I was curious about where the film would go because I think repatriation is such a complex political, cultural, theoretical issue where, I mean, we all agree France should not have, or France or Britain should not have Beninese treasures. But sometimes a conversation around repatriation can also, you know, be driven by like nationalistic and ideo nationalistic ideology that is cynically being used by states and politicians. Um, there's obviously talk of what happens to those artifacts once they're restored in what way they are actually returned to the people. How much is a sense of restoration actually possible when we're talking about things that were part of the kingdom of Dahomey and, you know, who did they belong to then? They were objects of worship then and now they're objects of, you know, museum exhibition. So I was wondering if the film would just be this kind of very poetic, um, uh, odyssey that would be moving, but maybe a little cheesy. And then this town hall comes in that gets at all of these questions, all of them. And they are all voiced by young people. I believe it was, uh, filmed or the town hall was held at a university, yes. uh, per the credits. And I, there's a scene before the town hall where you see, I guess, one of the curators of the museum or archivists, identifying each piece and sort of describing its condition and origin. And so there's this incredible like knowledge production captured inside the film, incredible knowledge production in Benin. 
um, that feels political, radical, and also riveting and really contextualizes the return of these objects through all of these different perspectives. And one at one point in, a, in the film, one of the people in the town hall says, you know, don't say that 90% of our cultural heritage is abroad because cultural heritage, only part of it is material. The rest is immaterial and we still have that. And the film embodies that, you know, I think it both reflects the extraordinary importance of having your material cultural heritage visible and being able to draw that historical continuity between you as an individual in the present and like the where you sort of come from, however that may be defined, but also that heritage is made up of so much more and is produced in this ongoing way. Um, yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm just going to be uh, thinking about the film for a while and on the many threads that it raised. And just the fact that it, it this could have been just such a straightforward documentary and instead with this remarkable feat of editing and interviewing and hybridization between a kind of fantasy and nonfiction, it becomes something else and something so much more profound. I would say it's probably the strongest film that I've seen so far at the festival. I'll just throw that down there. And I, it's only I will, day three, but yes. I'll second you. <laughs> it is day three, but I've already seen like nine films and this was the best. So, um, Anyone want to do any little shout outs or should we... I don't. <laughs> like, sorry. No, no, you passed it to me. No, no, I won't. I saw some bad films yesterday, which I will not speak about. Mm, they will yes. not be named. No, they will not be named. So, yes, I unfortunately missed the Maddie Diop. But from what you guys are saying, I like 69 minutes or something. For I mean, everything economy. that you've explained, like, I feel like each one of you really got into different aspects of it. I'm like, this is all one film. So I'm <laughs> very excited. <laughs> All right. Uh, on that note, let's wrap it up. Thank you to the three of you for Thank joining you. me. And uh, I will be prowling outside screenings the next couple of days waiting to capture you for another podcast. So beware. <laughs> The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 